1: This is a Houndsman XP
2: podcast with your host, Steve Fielder, and me, Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. In this episode of the Houndsman XP podcast, we bring you Houndsman and Master Falconer Paul Domsky. Paul comes to us from New Mexico and we sit down and chat with him about the ancient art of coursing dogs and the use of falcons in the pursuit of game. Hey, this is going to be really cool. Houndsmen date back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. There are drawings on cave walls of ancient man hunting with use of his dog. And Paul capitalizes on this in two ways. One, he's using a dog, and the other is he is using a falcon. This is truly a sport of royalty. If you look at the uh, history of Persian kings and the Arab lands and all through the Middle East, this was an art that was developed there. And that's where these dogs come from as well, that Paul uses. He is using a Saluki. So we're going to talk about the breeding, the historical breeding of Salukis, how they were used in the old country and how Paul is using them now in the 21st century in New Mexico, in the high desert plains. And he adds that twist of being a falconer. So he's using birds of prey to assist his dogs as well. This is an exciting episode. It is really outside the box of, of what we traditionally think of as houndsmen. But what an important story. The Houndsman XP podcast was created to bring unity among all houndsmen. In order to do that, we have to be able to tell that story. We need to be able to talk about all of the great things that we can do with our hounds, whether it's a sin hound, big game hound, coon hound, rabbit hound, or a side hound. It's all important if we intend to stand united in the future for the houndsman lifestyle. So, please stay tuned for this episode. It's a great episode. We're going to talk about catching hawks. We're going to talk about uh, salukis. We're going to talk about modern breeding practices among the sidehound crowd and really bring some exposure to this untalked about segment of our houndsman community. While we're talking about the hound hunting community, I want to tell you about a couple of companies here that support your lifestyle as a houndsman. The first company I want to mention is Dogs Are Treed. Okay, Dogs Are Treed is a company that's run by Kevin and Nancy Hall out of Incom, Idaho. They bring you an amazing product called Paws Are Protected. Paws Are Protected is a pad conditioner. It actually works across the spectrum of cell regeneration to get those dogs' feet in condition so they can run for hours and miles and day after day. I'm personally using are Protected now. Uh, I've got one male plot hound that has a little bit of problem with some soft feet. Since I started using that, I've had zero problems with uh, any pad problems or foot problems with him. And you can go to dogsartree.com. You can read testimonials from houndsmen across the country that have have found this great product. And right now, if you join us as a supporter on Patreon through the month of June, we will send you a code for 20% off of Paul's Are Protected and all other merchandise that is sold at Dogs Are Treat. So make sure you go to our website at houndsmanxp.com, find our Patreon page. There's a link right on the front page that that is a support button. It's a green button. Push that. It'll take you right into Patreon. And you are going to get a code for 20% off of Paws are Protected and all merchandise sold at Dogs Are Treated. Once you receive that code, you can find Dogs Are Treated. You can find a link right to their website on our webpage as well at houndsmanxp.com. So look for our sponsor link and that will take you right to Dogs Are Treat. The other company I want to talk to you about is W Hunting Supply. W is a premier, premier, that's what I'm trying to say, premier dealer in all hound supplies. Whether you need a Garmin, you need collars, you need leashes, kennel supplies, it's all there at dusupply.com. And what's better is they are all houndsmen that, understand your needs and they bring you the best gear that they possibly can get at prices that you can afford and their customer service is legendary. So make sure you're contacting and looking for DU Supply at dusupply.com. W is the place that you need to go for all your hound hunting needs. I want to circle back quickly to Patreon. Why should you join Patreon? For one thing, you're going to support this podcast that brings you shows like this, but we're going to talk about conservation issues, management issues, the fights around the country. But Patreon is going to give you an in-depth look at Houndsman XP. We're going to bring you exclusive content and articles. We just rolled out HXP pro tips, and the first segments of those will be done by Jared Moss, one of the most asked questions that we get is about e-collar training. And Jared Moss is an expert on e-collar training. So you will want to make sure that you're a Patreon sponsor so that you can have access to all that. We're also going to send you some Houndsman XP gear with that. Right now we've got a really classy stainless steel tumbler with a Houndsman XP logo on it. We're also going to ship you a Houndsman XP window decal to go along with that, so you can fly your colors and show your support from the premier podcast dealing with the Houndsman lifestyle. So, we appreciate those Patreons out there who are supporting us now. And we also want to encourage you, if you have not come and joined our community on Patreon, to do so. We have got a lot of cool stuff there, and it's going to keep growing. We really appreciate your time today, sharing it with us and enjoy this episode with Paul Domsky. Welcome to the Houndsman XP podcast. And we are back with a episode of Epic Proportions because my high energy co-host, associate Seth Hall has lined up another guest and he's on the mic and it's always exciting when Seth's around. How you doing, Seth?
0: I'm doing pretty good. Glad to be here, everyone.
2: What what are you doing down there? I'm watching your weather right now, and you guys are hovering around the mid-90s for the next 10 days. You guys run at night down there? What are you doing?
0: Um, Right now, my dogs are in the off-season. They are now world-class couch potatoes. So then the hares need to breed, so we give them a break during the spring and summer, and our dogs get to just recuperate, uh, gain a couple lazy pounds, and hang out, and just kind of watch the rabbits hop around the outside the fence and get ready for the next season.
2: Yeah, but you anybody, I mean, I I the short time that I've known you Seth, there is no downtime for you. So what are you doing?
0: <laughs> okay, so I am sweating mostly. Um <laughs> but uh we mostly wait until uh nightfall or right around nightfall to go out and do exercise. So we I take them for a walk every day in the desert shrubland that I live in. It's terrible for any like rabbit coursing, but they'll see them everywhere and they'll take off after very very short races which is good. I don't want them going hard in the heat and, uh, they'll just kind of keep sharp and stay in shape and, and, uh, get to stretch their legs, but don't do anything crazy. And sometimes if I have time, which is rare, I'll get up in the early morning and let them exercise. But most of the time, the summertime is all about, um, replenishing our, our rabbits and, and, uh, healing injuries and pep talks, lots of Rocky music playing in the background, lots of montages (laughs) of rabbits running on the screen. You know what I mean? And, uh, getting psyched and amped ready for next season. Honestly, it's pretty lame. I wish I could run longer. The coon, all my coon hunting friends are showing me pictures of them still going out at night. And I'm like, oh, so jealous. You need to get a coon hound. (laughs) I do. I need, that's what I need. I need more dogs.
2: (laughs) You only need, you only need one good coon hound.
0: That's an excellent upside. That, that is something that I've been talking to a lot of my scent hound buddies and we, we always love to weigh the pros and cons of our particular sport. I just think that's really interesting stuff to talk about. And uh, that is absolutely an upside of coon hunting is that one good coon dog and he can hunt for so many years and yep. give you excellent service and only get better with age. And honestly, a coursing dog really starts to decline after about five, at least in my experience. So, um, yeah.
2: Yeah. How are you guys fair? How are you guys faring out there with uh, hopefully this pandemic thing is winding down. You know, as we record this, we're right in the end of of April here, but uh, Indiana's looking at starting to open things up this week. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, so El Paso actually is our neighbor, and uh, we're having a, El Paso's having a surge in cases right now. Um, Them being next door to Juarez is having a, they're not having a good time either. Um, So yeah, um, we're just going to kind of see what's going on, and hopefully that stays in El Paso, but obviously there's a lot of flow back and forth between las cruces and el paso so yeah we will see Um, i'm staying pretty socially distant luckily my work keeps me very socially distant and i'm just being a hermit hanging out with my wife and my dogs so
2: you don't you don't want to catch anything from an awdad? (laughs) dad
0: no i do not i would i I don't think i'd catch covid from one but i could maybe get brucellosis or something from one who knows so (laughs)
2: yeah so so Let's talk about let's talk about plagues and things like you had a bout with with a uh, a pretty silly serious injury or disease. What was it? Bubonic y- plague? Y- <laughs>
0: yes, yes it was. was actually. It? <laughs> See, yeah, I it only was.
2: thought that thing I only thought that that was like a myth. I thought that was something Ancient times ago, I I joke about it. You know, it's if I get a cold or something, I'll tell people I've got the plague. But you've actually had it. Yeah, I thought that yeah, died out I with have. it, like knights and castles and stuff <laughs> like that.
0: Yeah, so we do a uh, an annual rodent survey at my work, and uh, we handle hundreds of wild rats, if not thousands. Well, among the crew, thousands, but myself, hundreds. And, yeah, um, my wife jokes that I have the best Renaissance Fair costume in the world now. I can just go as myself and be a bubonic plague <laughs> survivor. <laughs> so... But yeah, it was a, it was like, it was just crazy. People are always like, "Whoa, you had the plague? What's that like?" And I was like, "It was expensive and painful and pretty scary, honestly." <laughs> so, so tell, you, tell me how it happened. I mean, you're handling
2: rats, and that's weird. Yeah, in all and in of. So itself. we take.
0: Yeah, we take great care to avoid um, being in contact. As anyone knows, the the uh, plague's vector is fleas. So um, a vector is what transfers a disease from its host mm-hmm. to another host, and so. Fleas carry bubonic plague, and plague is a bacteria. Yersinia pestis is its scientific name, and uh, it it lives in the digestive tract of a flea. And what it actually does is makes a physical plug in the flea's digestive system, which causes the fl- the flea to feel malnourished, but also very nauseous. So it eats ravenously, <laughs> but then, yeah. So when the the flea is eating ravenously, they suck blood. So it's drinking copious amounts of blood. But then it has extreme nausea, which causes it to vomit that blood. And so when a flea jumps off a rat and jumps onto me, um, he took a bite of me, decided that he had a stomach ache and barfed in my bloodstream. And now I have bubonic plague. And so um, what happened was is, um, you know, honestly, and and this is the truth. These aren't like sewer rats, what everyone's thinking. These are like desert rats and kangaroo rats and pack rats and things that live way out in the deep desert with no human contact. Right. And or or extremely little human contact. And normally they have a very low flea load. And so this year, this was um, four years ago uh, that year. The flea load was surprisingly high, even on our kangaroo rats. And I was like, what's going on? So there's a red flag. And also our population was very low when we were having a great year of rain. So I was like, "Uh oh, like anytime you have low loads of rats when the weather is good, that's not a good sign. And so I was like, "Uh oh, paying attention now because if I start to feel kind of woozy, maybe I could get some kind of hantavirus is usually the first thing that you think of. And so um, no, I had a not cold first thing I think. Of, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So I had a running cold for like two weeks and I was like, ah, it's just a cold. It's just a cold, you know. And uh, I remember I, I, I got home and uh, I wasn't feeling very good. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to pop these dog antibiotics and just kind of see where I go. What? You know, what? Oh, wait, wait, <laughs> wait, wait,
2: wait. What? You had antibiotics there from your dogs from the vet?
0: well well so like okay it's for people and dogs it's it was just um, amoxiclav which is amoxicillin and clavinate mixed together okay. which is very common for humans and dogs it was just uh-huh. at a dog di- dog dose so i just ate more <laughs> so but i was very careful to get my milligrams per pound correct right. you know? <laughs> anyway so i ate these antibiotics and uh, i was like feeling better the next day and i was like uh oh that's not good so <laughs> i was like cuz cause plague is a, a bacterial disease. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh man, maybe. And so I was still in denial, you know, cause I was like, there's no way, you know? And I was just like, whatever, whatever. So I felt better the next day. And then about a day and a half later, I just crashed. I went downhill so fast. And I remember I went to open a barbed wire gate and I reached my arm through the gate pile and I felt my arm like hit the gate and it just like serious pain under my armpits. And my lymph nodes in my armpits had like quadrupled in size and just on my right side. And I was like, oh, that's not good. And so the, no doubt. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so I, I felt the other side and they were all normal. And the ones under my jaw were all normal. So I was like, oh, crap. And I remember uh, I worked the whole day. I got home. My wife was like, you look horrible. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I was already now I started to believe her. She's like, we should go to the hospital. I was like, nah, nah, it's too expensive, whatever. And so I went to lift up a laundry basket full of clothes and I could barely lift it. I was like so weak. And then I almost Mm -hmm. collapsed into the wall. And my wife was like, we're going to the hospital. And I was like, "Okay, fine. So I get to the hospital and you know how it always is at the hospital. There's always like helicopter moms and they're like kids with the sniffles and stuff. And I look like death walking. I like go into the hospital. I walk up to the counter. And of course, it's this apathetic like (laughs) receptionist that's just like, can I help you? And I'm like, okay, I'm a wildlife biologist. Um, I've ha- I've been pretty sick for about two and a half weeks. I've handled thousands of wild rodents in the last three weeks. I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure I have bubonic plague. plague. Yeah. I've got the eye, plague. Yeah. Her so, eyes, like, wide- widened, and she, like, was like, come back immediately. And so I went back there. So <laughs> What's so up?
2: there's a few things here that i got to cover, backtrack on, before we get too far into the story. And this isn't all we're going to talk about today. We've actually got a guest today. But this is funny. <laughs> um So one is you haven't been a government employee long enough because it doesn't, you don't have to have swollen lymph nodes to take a sick day when you're a government, a seasoned government employee. Oh yeah. No, this is all me. Yeah, this is a hundred percent me. I mean, you can find reasons to stay home. You know, I've got a hangnail. uh, I might get sick about noon. Uh, There's a post meeting today. So I probably am feeling a little bit ill anyway. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons that you can stay home when as a as a government employee. Did did I lose you? I've just you've muted yourself and and you've bowed out of the conversation. Oh
0: my goodness, no! Uh, I don't know how my mic muted itself. That's weird. I my hand is away from the. You're, keyboard that's see huh. the
2: difference between me and you is I'm retired so I can say stuff like that and you're not <laughs> so if somebody listens to this and they laugh they'll think well Seth maybe we need to call you in for some some corrective yeah. counseling
0: <laughs> yeah so uh, I actually had some new guy fervor at the time let's just be honest and uh, yeah. I also just I didn't want to leave my team hanging because our rodent trapping is a lot of work and so I, I just wanted to make sure that the crew had me there to help. And uh, I'm kind of the, the lead guy for the rat trapping crew. So Jeez. I wanted to make sure I was there to help. But <laughs> also, um, yeah, I just I, I was in denial and the cold. Like, <clears throat> so, so the the way the disease works is you have pro, pre, pre-symptoms for up to two weeks and they're just like a mild flu. And, and it truly was pretty mild. It pops some Dayquil and man up. You know what I mean? You're fine. Right. And then you crash, and you have this wicked fever. And then when that happens, these, your lymph nodes swell up to the size of chicken eggs and explode. And that is when you die. <laughs> so, nice. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, let's I, just push that to the limit. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> it was alarming how quickly my lymph nodes swole up. That was what I found the most alarming. They went from being relatively normal to about the size of my thumbnail in like a day, two days. Wow. Yeah so I was like this and it hurts a lot like I I was surprised at how painful that was um anyway so I I got to the doctor and I I remember when I got back in the waiting room they hooked me up to all this like you know, masks. They drew 11 vials of my blood. They took. They were testing me for everything, and I was a huge celebrity. There was a gunshot victim in there, and they were ignoring that guy. Like they were like, "I want to go, t- I want to go talk to this plague guy." Yeah, we like, see
2: gunshots all the time. Let's go
0: talk to yeah. this medieval dude with the bubonic plague. <laughs> yeah, and then they just go there and just see some skinny dorky redneck sitting there, really. And so, like, um, you know, all the doctors are questioning me, and and all these nurses were coming in, and they looked like they were wearing spacesuits, you know, because right. there's a form of plague. Called called pneumonic plague, which is in your lungs. And it's extremely, extremely, um, contagious and also very deadly. And so they wanted to make sure I didn't have that. And then, uh, they were asking me if I had rabies. One of the doctors was like, have you been bitten? Have you been bitten? And I was like, no, I haven't been bitten like by anything. And then like, I was like, I was bit by a werewolf or something, you know? And, and then, Anyway, by the end of it, my discharge, so, but there's so many doctors coming to see me and talking to me and I had the same story the whole time. And long story short, (coughs) one, one nurse comes in, she starts opening up my mouth and looking at all my teeth. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is going on? And I thought she was looking at my gums or something. And then like an hour and a half later, I was reading my discharge paperwork. by the way, they just hooked me up to a bunch of doxycycline through an IV. Mm -hmm. It's a a powerful gram negative antibiotic. And, uh. Yeah. It made me feel really sick. Like I was barfing everywhere and stuff, but Mm -hmm. afterwards I felt great. And I was like, I am so glad it's 2017. And so yeah, within 72 hours, I felt normal. It took about six weeks for my lymph nodes to return back to the normal size. But, uh, yeah, I felt amazing pretty quick. And I was like, man, I am so happy. I live in the two thousands. Well, I'm going (laughs) to share a
2: little, I'm going to share a little secret. Okay. So I've got this phobia of rats. Oh, ah. they are, they are from the devil. They have no, <laughs> there is no reason to have rats in this world. And it developed, it started developing when I was a kid, we had a, you know, on the farm and you would go out to feed and you'd, you'd throw open the feed bin and there'd be a rat in there and it'd jump out mm-hmm. and scare the snot out of you. Well, you know, we learned to deal with that. We wave, wave form. You just start carrying a our- I'd carry my 22 rifle out there and the rat would run up on the beam and I'd shoot it and kill it. And then I'd get some vindication out of the whole thing. And it it turned into a challenging thing. But when I went to Desert Storm, uh, we were in some bunkers. We went out and and built these bunkers and stuff. Well, it didn't take long for the rats to figure out. And somebody would leave part of an MRE in there, something stupid. And it didn't take long for these rats to figure out that that was a neat place for them to hang out. There were nice little tunnels built for them and, you know, places of concealment. And occasionally some dumb jarhead would leave something in the the hole uh, for Mm -hmm. them to eat. So you'd be in there and you'd be trying to sleep, you know, because you'd be on watch and then you'd be off watch and, you know, you'd alternate you wake up a few times and there's, you know, Ben, the black rat, sitting on your chest, sitting there eating an MRE cracker, staring at the face. <laughs> and it was just like, holy crap, I am done with this. And you didn't sleep the rest of the night. So, needless to say, Command didn't take it real serious because when there's rats in the hole, you don't sleep on when you're supposed to be on watch. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> you stay awake. I so, will take I will take your rat phobia and I will cure you of it because a kangaroo rat is the most harmless, adorable little rat you've oh, ever I seen. Yeah, he's they cute. just look like a gerbil. Mm-hmm. They look like a cuter version of a gerbil and they are completely harmless. Yeah. You can literally just reach into the live trap and grab them with your bare hands and just hold them in your hand and put an ear tag on them and let them go. <laughs> They're, they're not like, when you catch them, they're just like, I'm dead. And they just, they just give up immediately. Wow! And so like, they're not like a, and now a pack rat, if you try, it's like a pit bull in there. You try to reach in there and grab that thing. It'll chew your hand off. But a kangaroo rat, they're pretty much the most harmless, adorable animal in the world. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. (laughs) When you guys, when you guys come coursing with us, I'll catch you one so you can see it and you Um, can hold it. We're going to have,
2: we're going to have to do it because I do believe in facing your phobias. But um, yeah, I might I might try that. But Norwegian wharf rats, and all that Ugh. garbage. And no, thanks. No, you know. thank you. Yuck. I'll pass hey, on that too. <laughs> you know what we got going on today? We we do have a guy that's taking some time out of his schedule. I'm going to let you introduce our guest today. I think this is. Uh, it's it's older. He he practices uh, hunting hunting practices that are older than the bubonic plague. So yeah, very
0: much so. Yes, go for indeed. it, Seth. Well, uh, this is my guest today. His name is Paul Domsky. I met Paul. Um, well, Paul's been uh, a figure in the coursing community for some time. And I has seen, had seen him on social media for a long time. And, and he had commented a couple of times on some of the, my pictures I had taken. And we'd had some very pleasant interchanges over the years. But uh, just very recently, I decided I just wanted to kind of freshen up my viewpoint and talk to someone that's completely outside of the circle I normally talk to. And so I just reached out to Paul and uh, we had a really good conversation over the last probably s- four months, maybe. And uh, I really enjoyed talking to him a lot. And I thought he had really interesting viewpoint and uh, and uh, um, just, a, just a neat way of looking at things that was totally different than uh, what I was used to. And so um, he was nice enough to Ask if I wanted a puppy and that was actually way after I'd been talking to him for some time And so that cute little puppy I posted on the hounds and xp website was from paul And so i'm very thankful and uh, i'm glad to have you here paul. Thanks for joining us, buddy. Welcome paul oh,
3: Thank you. Thank you. Can you guys hear me? Okay, here we, we can. can perfect. Okay, great great No, it's great to be here. Um This is all new to me. So if I sound uh, a little nervous, you'll forgive me <laughs>
0: You'll only sound nervous a little bit, trust me. I I was only nervous for the first about five minutes on mine.
3: So, Okay. Good deal. And
2: we kind of feed on that, too. So uh, (laughs) it's like a feeding frenzy. When we get a guest that that acts a little nervous, (laughs) then we just start piling on. So no
0: pressure at all, Paul.
3: (laughs) Uh, I can totally relate. I can totally relate. Excellent. Well, good deal.
0: Well, we can start it off by a nice, easy question. Paul, tell us about yourself, and uh, how old are you, where do where you live, and and uh, just tell us about yourself.
3: Man, let's see, I'm 57, uh, I live in, um, I live east of Albuquerque, so central New Mexico. Um, I'm a, I am went to, I've got my undergraduate degree in geology and a graduate degree in geochemistry. I work as a government contractor on nuclear waste issues. Um, I'm also a falconer. I've been a falconer for 20, almost 21 years, and it was through falconry that I got into sighthounds about 18, 19 years ago, and, uh, you know, they're both both huge passions of mine, and they, you know, kind of, as my wife can attest, they kind of, uh, they take over your lives, and in good ways and sometimes you, bad. You don't have to tell us that. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I, I live in a. I'm fortunate to live in a pretty good place to do both those things. So, um, you know, I try to take advantage of my situation as much as possible. Where yeah, did you, you guys? In,
2: where did you oh, say you live, Paul?
3: Uh, I live in the town of Teharis, about 20 miles east of Albuquerque.
2: Okay, so you're in New Mexico as well. Great, wide open spaces out there I can really see a guy getting into falconry so yes yeah. I'm sure we'll get into this but um, so I know that falconry is broken down into apprentice and and goes all the way up to master falconer you know type yep. stuff so so just kind of walk us through that part a little bit where are you, where are you at on that scale you've been in falconry for how long
3: uh for going on 21 years okay um, yeah I mean you know, the there, there's three levels of permitting. So there's the apprentice level, there's the general level, and then there's the master level. And just because you have a, you know, a master's permit doesn't necessarily make you a master. You right. know? It's like <clears throat> I consider myself uh, you know, a student of falconry. And just when you you know, just like everything else in life, once you feel like you've really you you've gotten into it pretty deep you realize how little you actually know and uh i can say that's true from the the hound side of things as well
2: that's a great message
3: but but, um you know with regard to falconry um i got into it when i was a kid about in 10 12 years old i had a bird and uh that a neighbor had provided and um And, uh, yeah, from there, you know, I was a kid and life got in the way growing up, going to school and whatnot. And then once I was married and had a settled life, I got back into falconry and found a local guy who was willing to be my sponsor. Um, Tom Smiley was kind of a legend in the sport. And, uh, yeah, it's just gone from gone from there, taken off from there. I don't know.
0: You I always hear about hours,
3: of... but I would put everybody to sleep. <laughs> <clears throat> you, you always talk. You
0: always hear about guys that fly, but you're the first person I've ever actually been up close to that has has birds. And when I first saw your birds in the in the pins, I was like, man, yeah, that's, that's the real deal. And I mean, mm-hmm. it's so weird. I've never met anyone who got into coursing after they got into something as high level as birds. So, like, I mean, why? Why did you get into coursing after flying, Paul?
3: Well, because they're both um, well, they're both very ancient sports, and um, I'm a big fan of a writer who lives in New Mexico, Steve Bodio, and uh, God, back back in the early 2000s, well, around 2000 probably, I read a book of his called Querencia, which basically is just sort of a memoir of his of his early years living in New Mexico, and he had coursing hounds, and he lived uh, he lives in the town of Magdalena, which is oh Mm -hmm. gosh it's way out in the middle of nowhere west of socorro and he talks about the coursing hounds and he talks about one of his big influences which was dutch salmon who's a well-known houndsman and sportsman in new mexico
1: Mm -hmm. and
3: he he mentioned that dutch had a you know owned a bookstore in silver city new mexico and uh you know when one time when my kids were little. My wife and I and the kids were on spring break down there, and I happened to look up Dutch, and we hit it off real well. And I bought his book on coursing and really got the bug. And a couple months later, he offered me a dog, and you know the rest, as they say, is is history. Really.
0: Yeah, Dutch so, is man. I. I devoured his book. I mean, I, I heaped a bunch of praise on him in my podcast. So I don't want to I don't want to sound like I'm gushing again. But <laughs> I only I only got to meet him for a very short time in the eve of his life. But he was a huge inspiration for me to want to write more because I love yeah. writing. Yeah. yeah, I loved his book. Oh, my gosh. what a, I mean, he's written a ton of books, but his book on coursing gaze hounds in particular, yeah. I was just man, I just devoured that book. And I loved his writing style. And he, he got around a bit. Luckily for me, um, he knew David, uh, David Heiss and Justin Heiss. So I, I, got to meet them, meet him through them as well. Um, but obviously he got around and, and his, uh, message really got through the community and he, he was a big inspiration for me. So, um, yeah. yeah. Likewise, did, did, likewise. did you get your first dogs from him? Is that what you said? Yeah.
3: Yeah. He gifted, uh, he gave, he gave this, um, this long dog. It was, um, it was stag hound and greyhound and saluki and it looked very much like a uh, like a like a saluki and uh that dog was um he was really special to and to our to my family i mean he was he was like i remember when we brought him home my wife was like you got to be kidding we can't have we had australian shepherds at the time and uh not
0: catching much rabbits at them
3: (laughs) no no not even trying you know and yeah um, and and this dog was like an alien. He he looked different. He he behaved completely different. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a, mm-hmm. and he was a hunting dog for Dutch. So he lived in a kennel. And you know, we're we're kind of house dog people, and which is goes against the general sports wow. dog.
0: I'm I'm there with yeah, you. I got him. I got him inside too. So <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. And 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 this dog, his name was Badger. He was just unbelievable. And. It took a little while, but the bonds he built with my family, my wife in particular, and my kids was just unbelievable. You know, he was just really loyal. He was a great protector of the family, and uh, I used to use him at the time I was flying a lot of goshawks, and he would we'd go out hunting, you know, cottontails and jacks with the goshawks, and it's uh, where I got my first taste of of using uh, the combination of a dog and a bird together, and that was that was really neat and uh yeah we had we had some fun times back then
0: could he could he catch a pretty rock hard rabbit was he good
3: uh you know i never ran him as a solo i didn't know anybody then who had these dogs mm-hmm. you know i mean Dutch you give me a couple names um of people locally, like Chris Mason, for example, who's a, oh, who's yes. a legend in the Slouki world, who just lives lived a few miles away at the time. But Chris had a very busy uh, career at the time and was very busy with doing her thing with the dogs. And
1: mm-hmm.
3: it wasn't until a few years later that I actually got to meet people and find out that there's a bunch of them right around where I live who run. Yeah, on regular basis.
0: that's what's. A- that surprised me a bunch is how many yeah. people are actually around us that hunt this way still. I thought it was yeah. kind of a dead
3: sport. Yeah, it's definitely an underground uh, sort of thing. And uh, but yeah, no, he was he was a great dog. I I really couldn't tell you how his how his abilities were though because I at the time I wasn't a good judge and Just I didn't, didn't have, have the eye. To, yeah, didn't have anybody to judge him against. Yeah.
0: So here's my question then, and I'm sure all our listeners are are wanting to know. Tell us how a sight hound and a hawk hunt together. Because when I found out people do that, that is, that's pretty next level. So just walk us through how you hunt with a hawk and a speed dog at the same time.
3: <laughs> well, I think it's probably one of the oldest forms of hunting that exists to mankind. I mean, I'll, I'll take a little bit of a sidebar here, but... You know I mean humans have been hunting on like the steppes of uh, you know Asia for eternity right since humans have been around and they probably around then were domesticating horses and dogs were domesticating humans horses and dogs probably all domesticated each other at around the same time and seeing it firsthand many times I believe that what happened was you know, there was a hunting party out and they had their dogs and maybe a hare got up or a gazelle or something and an eagle or a falcon came in and partook in the hunt. And I believe that's how how this whole thing got started with falconry. And it probably happened in several pra- places around the world simultaneously. So when guys like me, or there's there's actually several of them in New Mexico who hunt with sighthounds and um, falcons. When you go out and do it, I mean, you've, you've seen good jackrabbit chases. You know what's uh-huh, going on. Yeah. These guys will release a falcon, and so they're, they're walking along. We're pretty much doing it always on foot. Uh, you, you get a slip on a hair, and the dogs take off. You pop the hood off the falcon, which is a like a leather helmet, which keeps them calm on your fist while you're walking. And uh, the bird will take off and start chasing after the hounds and they, they gain a little altitude and then they come in on an angle and take shots at the hare. And, um, you know, all it takes is one little blow to, you know, to set the rabbit off balance and the dog can come in and grab it. A lot of times the hares are extremely fast or they've got no, they should be wearing helmets because they can't take a blow to the head. Just mm. so comes in and taps it. On the head they pretty much are dead whether it breaks their neck or it just it does something that that they're not accustomed to they they Mm -hmm. they cannot handle it so it's an extremely efficient type of hunting i mean it's uh your percentages your kill percentages go way up when you add a falcon to the mix or a hawk for that matter so yeah
0: yeah. they uh the it's amazing how specialized hares are because i mean everyone knows a jackrabbit's fast but just to see the footwork they can put down on a predator is incredible, and i'm I'm imagining them pulling a bunch of unique moves that I've never seen against a, a bird that they wouldn't have done against dogs. I mean, what's the craziest thing you've seen them do to escape the birds?
3: Well uh, I'll send you some I'll send you some video um, but it's it's completely different when you're hunting a bird alone on jacks, um, they're not going full speed they um they will they'll pull all kinds of tricks out they'll do off-speed maneuvers so they'll just run up to a sagebrush and stop and the the bird's got so much momentum it just flies right by and then the the hare can turn around and run away when there's a dog chasing them they don't have that opportunity i see And, and a lot of times with uh with with the um with just a bird the 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 rabbit will run in a tight circle, maybe twenty foot diameter, and and it just stalls the bird right out.
0: Oh, ah, okay, gotcha. Or, gotcha.
3: or a lot of times the the that, the bird will come in behind it, and you know how the um, hares have peripheral vision—that's you know pretty much one hundred and eighty degrees. Yep. Which, the hair will jump straight up and the bird will go underneath it. It's What? Just, oh, you see that? That's probably the most common maneuver you see. <laughs> and you've got video of this? <laughs> yeah, I do, not of my birds, but a good friend of mine is really good videographer who's got uh, lots oh of... Oh my it. gosh, that's
0: so awesome. I, I mean, I got a huge soft spot for rabbits. I know just because we're hunting them, you wouldn't think that, but jackrabbits are just so badass. And oh, yeah. so like... Oh yeah. Oh man. Like that's cool. <laughs> that's awesome. I want to see that. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. no you see some interesting things you really do. I, I mean it's a, you know, it's a less a lesson in natural history really, you know, cuz it's you just get to see it more frequently than mm-hmm. you do if you're out walking. <laughs> with a so
2: I <laughs> want to, I want to kind of drill down into the falconry side a little bit if you'll if you'll uh, allow me to do that a little bit, Paul, cuz I think it's sure. something that um it is an ancient sport. And, and you know, such an old traditional type thing, and it's very unfamiliar to, especially 20, 21st century hunters. But uh, you know, in modern times, it's misunderstood. Um, so, you mentioned the permit levels, and I, I get totally what you were saying there about your apprentice, your your general, and your master. Um, and I really appreciated what you said about being a student, because that's one thing that we've tried to say about being a houndsman. You know, you never stop learning and it's, it's just a life thing too. Right. Um, You just never stop learning and developing your, your set. So, but I want to, how did you acquire your first birds? That's an interesting story. And I've got a little bit of, I'm going to act like I know nothing here. Uh, because okay. I really don't know a whole lot, but I do have some familiarity with it from my past profession and and knowing how, knowing a few falconers. So, how did you how did you sure. c- get your first birds?
3: Well, you know, by um, the, the federal regulations, so falconry is controlled both at the federal and state level. So, the federal regulations um, and probably ninety percent of the states. They require that when you get started as an apprentice your first year, that you actually trap birds from the wild and you use them. So, and the birds that you trap are first year birds. So, you will trap a, like a red-tailed hawk. Mm-hmm. And typically, you're allowed two types of birds. you are allowed a red-tailed hawk, which is people are very familiar with. You see them around a lot. They're, they're very common raptor in North America. Or uh, American kestrel, and kestrel is the smallest falcon that we have in North America. And there's a lot of them around, but they don't make good apprentice birds for a bunch of reasons, which we can talk about later. Let, let's just go with the redtail scenario okay. for now. So redtails are, are nice-sized birds. They weigh two to three pounds, which, you know, they look huge, but they are they don't really weigh that much. You see them commonly on on fence posts or on uh, phone poles and so forth, and you know they breeding they breed through the summer and then their young disperse, and uh, the the mortality rate in general on first year raptors, whether it's a golden eagle or a redtail or a kestrel, is usually around eighty percent. So eighty percent of the birds that are born any given year die, mm-hmm. which is extremely high. So mm-hmm. They allow they allow falconers to trap these birds and fly them, and given that there's so few falconers in the country, it really has no impact on their wild population. So, yeah, in order to trap a first year bird, you know, you wait until until fall when there's when the birds start to move on migration, and uh, October is a good month, and. You know, you drive down country roads and you look for them, and you you carry a trap with you. And there's several different kinds of trap, but the most basic one. This is what I
2: wanted to get into right here. This is cool.
3: Yeah, the most basic one is called the Balsha tree or a BC. It's called just you know people call them BCs. <clears throat> it's an ancient form of trap that was originally done in India. I think it literally means umbrella in some Indian language. So it's a it's a it's a hardware cloth. Dome essentially is one one popular shape, and what you do is you get fishing line and you tie monofilament nooses on it. I don't know the noose is maybe two and a half inches in diameter, and you use twenty or thirty pound test, some nice you know high quality line. You don't want you want you want mid quality line to put it that way. You don't want super limp line that's just going to lay down. You want stuff that's going to stand up. Mm-hmm. And you tie 50, 60, 100 nooses, depending on how ambitious you are. And some people are pretty ambitious because they get so excited about trapping season. And you get, you know, if if you're lucky, you get one of, you get one of, and you live in New Mexico, you get one of Seth's uh, native rats that he enjoys playing with so much. (laughs) Right, right. A kangaroo rat or actually most people people use mice or a gerbil. You know, gerbils are good because they come in natural colors. And you get a gerbil, and you put it in the in the trap, and you drive down these country roads, and you you know you you're scoping birds constantly, and it's amazing how with a little practice, you see every every bump on every pole turns into a into your future <laughs> hawk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, can't believe how many insulators I've seen that I thought were hawks, but anyway, so you're driving along, and you finally you you scope out a bird, and you you make a positive ID that it's a um, a first-year red tail, and you can tell by their plumage. They're they don't have a red tail for one, and they've got just different color plumage than an adult. And you drive past them, and you know you you make sure the situation is safe. You're not going to do this on a busy highway, <clears throat> and you set the trap down on the shoulder of the road or just in the grass where the bird can get a view of it. And hopefully that gerbil is running around, and the hawk, you know, it's up there on the pole, and it bobs its head a couple times and lifts his tail and we call it muting that's when they they poop and they take off and that's typical typically what they do before they launch an attack lightening the load
2: lightening yeah, the load
3: yeah. just just like our dogs do when we're yep. out in the field <laughs> yep. and they uh you know they jump off the pole and they come in gliding and they'll you know they'll they'll hit the trap and they get on it and they're they're grabbing at that thing with their feet they're footing it we call it and you know, they get a noose stuck on their toes or a bunch of nooses, and you can tell by the way they're acting from a distance when you're, you know, you park a quarter mile away in your car or your truck, and typically, by their behavior, you know if they're trapped.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And, you know, you goes running up there, and, uh, you know, I carry, with me when I'm doing this, I carry a big beach towel, and you throw the beach towel over the bird, and you secure the bird and put a leather hood on it to calm it down, and that's how you get your bird
0: are they trying to bite you because like you're saying just put a leather hood on it like it's casual but i'm imagining yeah. a, a knife on its face trying to attack you i mean uh how-
3: in, in general they're they're more active with their feet it's their feet you have to watch out for
0: oh okay <clears throat>
3: um some birds can be bitey but in general you know red tails are pretty good uh, they won't they won't bite you necessarily so much i mean you get obviously they're all individuals so they're going to mm-hmm. behave differently but now they're after you with their feet and you know when when they're on a trap and you you run up to them they flip over onto their back so it's really easy to just control their legs you just reach them wow. with one hand and, and control their legs and flip the hood over their head and you know close the braces and uh you know, untangle them from the trap and then secure them. So I okay. imagine
0: something as powerful as a golden eagle can do some serious damage with those feet. So, yeah.
3: Uh, yeah. And actually yesterday, the last couple of days, I've had the privilege of uh, helping out with a bird that was um, a golden eagle, a female golden eagle. She weighed in at about 12 pounds. Wow. Which is a very
1: large, very moly. large
3: golden eagle. She was, uh, she was shot. um and she was, but she got extremely lucky the the bird, the person who shot at her was a bad shot and they were using a shotgun and they, instead of killing her, they, they destroyed her primary feathers on one wing so she couldn't fly well. And Game and Fish trapped her up and brought her into a rehab replace and, uh, they called me to, to help them find a falconer that could manage the bird for the next year or two until the bird's, you know, flying and hunting again. So hmm. y- yesterday morning I got to go down and, and pick up this bird. I mean, its feet are about as big as my hand.
1: Oh, man. Uh,
3: that's, yeah, just, just huge. I mean, and their talons are like scimitars that are, you know, two inches long, you know, the talons, just the, just the nail itself, you know. Wow, it's just an impressive animal. <laughs> so, anyway, that was a little side side track there. Um, I don't know. Did I answer your question about trapping? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so it's,
2: it's the the tra- some of the traps I've seen kind of look like uh, a football. Uh huh. Um, you know, made out of, out of uh, that with the loops on it, and you put your uh, bait inside the trap, and yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with that, but the, you said slip the braces on, explain what a brace is.
3: Well, yeah. So you, the hood has the little, the little ties on the hood are called braces, but then on, on the bird itself, you put, um, leather anklets around, around its legs, the tarsus of the legs, which is just the arm part. And then you thread, um, jesses through the, through the anklets. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, falconry has a, in its own very ancient language that we all speak. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah.
3: So all the yeah. equipment has special names. So the, you know, the there's anklets. They're called the almyries that go around the leg, and you put a it's like a just a strap of leather, and then you put a, a brass grommet through that so, to close it. So that holds it on there. So a, a brass eyelet. Mm-hmm. we call them grommets and then you uh, then you thread straps through the, through the eyelet and those are called jesses and then you put a swivel on the end of the jesses and then that's attached to a leash and then you tie that to your glove or to a perch and uh, that's how the birds are secured um,
2: yeah there's a whole process for going through yeah. about you know getting a bird to eat out of your hand and yeah. And things like that. And I i know we can fill up a whole podcast with this, mm-hmm. but I just wanted right. to lay down some pretty, some interesting facts, but some basic facts so that people understand what the process is. And not everybody can just go out and say, I'm going to be a falconer. I'm going to trap my bird." <laughs> you know, you've got to have flight pins. You've got to, you know, you've got to have certain things set up before you even get to that part. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. And, yep. and yeah yeah I mean, it's definitely and, an interesting facet of hunting that that isn't talked about enough I think
3: yeah, yeah I mean and that's very true I mean and you know and I'm you know we can all appreciate the the recruitment effort of hunters I mean hunting in general where the numbers are going down and you know our our highly specialized forms of hunting like with hounds whether it be coon hounds or you know bears or lions or chasing jackrabbits with sighthounds and falconry. I mean, those are all forms of hunting that are old and highly specialized and, you know, trying to recruit new hunters is something we're always conscious of, but it's something that it, it can be a double-edged sword sometimes. Exactly. Simply because mm-hmm. You know, people aren't committed to it and they can be, they can sometimes do more harm than good. And uh, it's it's very difficult to recruit.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's one yeah. of those deals where you're like, let's get some more hunters, but just not falconers, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, exactly. because because you you can't afford to have somebody that's not committed to it, uh, just deciding one day on a whim that I'm going to go out and become a falconer, and yeah, you got to be dedicated to that. And it's the correlation to me is the same there are several correlations and parallels with being a houndsman. You know, uh-huh. it's, it's a level of dedication, and I've said this before, and it's not to bring slight to, to any other hunting group at all, but I turkey hunted this past week. I took my shotgun out of the safe on Tuesday evening and made sure that everything was functional, and then I hunted with it you know i can't do that with a hound i can't do that with a with a uh, a raptor if i'm a falconer nope. it's an everyday commitment and that's really what is missing in our message as houndsmen and hunters is this is an everyday commitment this is not i can hang my bow on the wall i can put my gun in the safe and and Very little, very little has to be done in between, you know, get the bow off the wall a few weeks before season and start shooting it. Now I know dedicated archers that shoot every day and they're, they're phenomenal. And I think that's, but I think that's where we should all look to be, you know, it's not just simply, I'm going to start today and there's a commitment, daily commitment. Glad to
0: hear it. It's a relationship and you have to maintain it.
3: Exactly. Let's but, talk,
2: uh, let's talk about dogs a little bit because, uh, sure. w- a lot, we got to talk about dogs a lot because this is a house, <laughs> podcast. but, uh, so, so I first became aware of Salukis because I went to, I got my, uh, uh, worked on my bachelor's degree at S- Southern Illinois university.
3: Well, of course you're at, a Saluki
2: at, at Carbondale there you go. and became familiar with what a Saluki was, but that's the only thing i know he was like the mascot that showed up at at uh, ball games and stuff that's what it meant to me at the time but uh being a houndsman i looked into it and and became intrigued with it but uh, i'm just going to sit back and let you and seth talk about salukis
0: okay <laughs> yeah so paul i um well as you know in the long dog community so a, a long dog to the listeners that are like what a long dog is a cross between two or more different sight hound breeds. So, you, a lurcher is when you cross a working dog to a sighthound. So, we're not hunting with lurchers, they're too slow for a jackrabbit. We're hunting with long dogs, greyhounds, and salukis. And so, I wanted to, Paul is is very renowned in the coursing community for having really high-quality salukis and uh that's one of the main reasons I wanted to reach out and hear Paul's story when I first started talking to him. And so, Paul, I guess the reason I want to ask you is, how did you get into Salukis? I mean, I know you know, we know you met Dutch and things, but how did you get into Salukis specifically, and, and what drew you to them?
3: Um, well, yeah, I mentioned the I mentioned the first dog that Dutch had given given to my family, and uh, he was very Saluki like, and uh, we had him for a few years, and he developed um, osteosarcoma and um you know we had to it got to the point we had to have them put down and it was really hard on on my family and uh, my wife was like no more dogs you know no more dogs and uh I don't know a couple months went by and I was all I could do was research sighthounds that's all I spent like every moment when I wasn't working you know sitting there looking at reading about breeds and uh uh, one weekend we were just sitting around, and I said, "Hey, you know, honey, there's a there's a there's a lure coursing thing going on over on the you know the the ranch over there in, in Stanley, New Mexico. Let's go check it out." And she, she didn't want to go, but she she reluctantly humored me, and we went. And uh, standing there, and I see these two guys, and they've got these these they're two beautiful sighthounds, really muscular, smooth dogs. You know, not the typical feathered Saluki that most people associated with salukis and uh, i walk up to him i strike up a conversation and it was these two guys robert place and joe minor and uh, they were planning on having a litter later that year and these were some really nice line of salukis they're um mostly this mid bar line which you may or may not know about seth i don't know actually mostly I do, started by getting but- yeah. Gail Goodman was, uh, mm-hmm. who lives here in New Mexico. That's her line of Salukis. And these dogs were nearly pure mid bar, but there was other things in there as well. And, uh, you know, we struck up a friendship with these guys and, um, they offered us a dog and then we ended up getting two from that litter. And, um, we still have one, one here. He's 14 years old now, but he's our, uh, our old Saluki. And that's, you know, we got those two, and that got us more into competitive coursing. And uh, a few years down the line from there, um, another friend who who I've mentioned before, Val Kepler and her husband, Steve, who live in Las Cruces, they had these desert-bred Salukis, which they got from another person who you know, Mary Beth Rogers. Mm-hmm. And uh, we ended up getting a, a desert-bred dog from Mary Beth, and... You know that opened the door on on these desert bred dogs. So tell us so my, the difference.
2: My... Different, tell us the difference, Paul, because we I'm I'm very ignorant about this. Uh, the different types of dogs. What was it about the dog that you saw uh, that caught your eye? You know what is a what is a Saluki coursing guy look for in a Saluki? <laughs>
3: Um, I've got some rambunctious hounds behind me right now. I don't That's know if good. You know that. If you guys can, if you can hear me, or just I'll keep, I'll continue. Uh, well, initially, what attracted me to them when I was doing my research was the fact that they're bred for a country that isn't very different from where I live here in New Mexico. You know, they're are Salukis are known for their toughness, despite the fact that they they everyone kind in this country maybe associates them more with the show ring. Um, but they're, they've, you, you look at a Saluki compared to a Greyhound and Salukis have these massive feet.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: They've got, they've got a lot of bone. They're lean. They're not overly muscled. You know, I mean, we all, I mean, you know, who, who, who does better in a marathon or who does better in a, in a 10 K, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or, um, you know, some guy who, who's a track runner, you know, they had just have the body type to, to maintain mm-hmm. you know speed and distance over they're they're mid distance runners, they're not endurance runners. Endurance runners would be your English pointers and English setters. Those guys can run 20 miles an hour for plot nine hours straight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, count. yeah you, you know exactly what I mean. Yep. Um and these, you know, I was just so intrigued. It just seemed like these were the perfect dog for for new mexico where i live and you know i have i have a little bit of bias um in the falconry world there's there's a lot of captive breeding that goes on so people breed falcons and they've they've there's there's one falcon that in particular that's just outstanding and it's a cross between a jeer falcon which is a big arctic falcon and a peregrine falcon which is you know, you've probably heard of them. They 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 live in you know pretty much every continent around the world, and they're fish hawks. They're they're duck hawks. Yep, they're not they're not um, fish hawks. Yep,
2: yep, you're right. Yep, my, <coughs> and, my mistake.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no fish hawk. That's an osprey. <laughs> yep,
2: you're right. right. Yeah, yep,
3: yep. But anyway, so so I mean, they've made this hybrid, this artificial hybrid called the Jeer peregrine, and they're outstanding game hawks, but. To me, they're not interesting because there's no natural history behind a jeer Peregrine. It's a man-made thing. And that's kind of where how I landed on Salukis as opposed to, you know, you can go with the, you can go with the hybrids. You can go with the, um, you know, the jeer or with a, a Greyhound Saluki and they're outstanding animals. They're beautiful and they run like the wind. They've got. They've got great speed and great bottom. And, but to me, it's, it was more challenging to, uh, you know, I've always been told that Salukis were slower and they don't catch game. But then I started, you know, the more research I did into North American Salukis about people who are running them over here, the more people I found who are catching hairs on a regular basis. And I, I, you know, just wanted to tap into that. And, uh, you know and I think with these these man, I'm taking a long, long circle here to get back to desert bred dogs. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> so, so the the these desert bred dogs are are dogs that are less than three generations out from their country of origin. So the particular line of dogs that I have are all they're they're you know quote unquote, Persian dogs. so they come from mostly the region in the world that we think of as Kurdistan, which encompasses Turkey, um, Iraq, and parts of Iran, I believe. And um, they're, you know, they're, they're still used over there for, you know, their practice of putting meat on the table, you know, hunting hares. Um, you know, we're not talking about dogs from the Arabian Peninsula here, you know, ones that, you know, Salukis are distributed all the way historically from northern Africa all the way into China, and they're dispersed along the Silk Road. And, you know, I think I've heard them described as um, a land race, you know, mm-hmm. a, a breed of dog that's kind of specialized for the regions in which they are, you know, where they're being bred. So if you go up into the mountains, more of the, ber- the dogs have slightly different bodies, and they, you know what I mean? Of course yeah. crossbreeding crossbreeding has gone on over the millennia with these dogs but you know there's they're, they're an ancient breed that you know were created by humans um, but yet they're still relatively pure and mm-hmm. uh, you know of that's what really turned me on to them and since you know discovering the, this line of dogs you know this these Kurdish dogs you know they're extremely gregarious You know, Salukis have a reputation of being aloof. These my dogs are not. I mean, you not at
0: all. Yeah, your dogs are so friendly.
3: Yeah. You know, they're super friendly. Uh, They're a lot more biddable than a lot of what people think of as Salukis. Um, You know, they're hounds though. I mean, we all know what hounds are like. Hounds, you know, they're they're not they're not herding dogs. They're not. You know, they're not. They're they're not a Labrador. Yeah. yeah. They're not a Labrador. They're, they they do have a level of aloofness, but I just love, love them. I mean, and they run great. They look good. And yeah, just,
0: you know. Yeah. What really attracted me to your desert bred dogs is that, you know, like you were saying earlier, the, the power of long dogs, some long dogs, especially ones that lean towards greyhounds, um, they're they're too powerful. The way I describe it for our desert is rough. I know in those pictures, it just looks like a sea of grass, but there's potholes and rocks and, and barbed wire and, and there's just lots of obstacles out there on the prairie. And um, oh, yeah. the, 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 the greyhound heavy long dogs, the, the dogs that have heavy greyhound genetics, they just get chewed up out there on that prairie. And every Saluki that's a good Saluki that I've seen can just last on that prairie for years And I want to get away from vet bills and move back into running more rabbits as much as possible. And so, although my two long dogs are amazing at catching rabbits, they are already starting to show signs of wear and tear from the prairie. And they're only three years old. And so, to me, although, yes, their catch rate is very high, I want to have a very high catch rate with an animal that's much more designed for the prairie. And like you were saying, the Saluki's lighter bodies they don't have that soup. Like the way I describe it is, I want a Baja truck. I don't want a Ferrari to go across the prairie. You wouldn't want right. to bomb across a grassland in a Lamborghini. You want to bomb exactly. across the, the prairie in a Baja truck. And those yep. desert bred dogs that you breed and and are in the circle uh, that you that you associate with, they have. You guys have the best desert dogs. Period. And so I'm really excited to be a part of that. Like the, like you were saying, the Salukis that. Their joints are bigger and stronger. Their feet are so much more robust than a greyhound's. A, a greyhound has these very powerful feet that dig dig powerfully into the earth, but those heavily arched toes with all that muscle get sprained a lot easier than a dog with heavy foot pads that a Saluki has. They have a lot more cushion and just not so much of that br- that raw power that they can. Just not destroy themselves. Yeah, I don't know how to describe it. It's just you need to tone that horsepower down and build up that frame a little bit. And so that's why the Salukis do so well here in the desert. And uh, I'm very excited to be a part of them and see them run. They're great. And uh, I I also kind of wanted to ask you, Paul, um, why why do you love coursing? Like what what drew you to a rabbit race? I, I always ask this to every houndsman I talk to because I say, you know, wh- why do you love a coon race? Wh- what is it about bear hunting that just, that you love so much? But tell me what you love the most about coursing.
3: Um, I guess it's the jackrabbit really. Um, me too. <laughs> and, and and seeing, seeing, seeing what the dog, you know, just, just the, the match of the, the dog and the, and the, and the hare. And, mm-hmm. um, you know because I, I saw it I was exposed to it more through falconry than than um than coursing for for several years and uh, you never you never see you never see the rabbit go into that fifth year when it's when there's a hawk chasing it because they don't need it. They can use maneuverability to to get away from a hawk. I mean Hawks catch a lot of rabbits, but they um.
0: The good ones are smart.
3: Yeah, the good ones are smart, but he, you get the, the raw speed when there's a dog behind behind it. And those jacks can just move out. You know, some of them, you know, the best ones can just, they get up and they just make a straight line and the dogs get further and further behind. And it's yep. like, those are, those are the most boring, <laughs> boring courses out there, but you just... Yep. You just, you just nod your head and you thank God that there's jacks like that out there to continue yep. to breed.
0: Yes, because if they're making your speed dog look like a dummy, imagine what they do to a coyote. I yep. mean, they're leaving yep. a different zip code with that coyote behind it. Yep. And, and those are the ones... I've had rabbits that can just straight away line out from our greyhounds. So, like, how does that happen?
3: You yeah, know well, I, mean? I know. Well, I've seen it many times. No, it's, it's, that's the truth. But, yeah, I mean, and then uh, the other part of of the coursing is, is when the dogs are doing work on the hair, when they're turning the hair and they, you know, they, they're working as a team or they're working with dogs that they've never run with before. And you see a chemistry build up on spot. And mm-hmm. a, you, you, you know, cause I do a lot of the, I do a lot of open field coursing, competitive coursing, and the dogs will run with dogs that they don't know that they don't know. My dogs will run with dogs. They don't know. And, uh, you get to see a different you get to see a different dynamic develop sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. which is really pretty interesting. So
0: and yeah. all at high speed,
3: <laughs> all at high speed. Yeah. All at high speed. Yep.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I I run with the same pack constantly for the most part. And so I have the exact opposite of that spectrum. I, I get to see that magic that happens with dogs that have hunted together for years. And I just it's just it's amazing. And uh, I, I put some articles up on our Patreon account. Of um, I have so many pictures of our dogs running because I we pursue them in the buggy, and right. you can watch them do those formations at high speed, and it's just awesome. I love it. So yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. I I always love to ask people why they love the sport, and I just it with coursers every time it's it's the jackrabbit. Right. Every, it's they're just yeah. such a neat little animal, and so undeserved of their vermin reputation. You know what I mean? Oh it's just, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you hunt them with dogs, you get to see them so majestic. Okay, full disclosure, I grew up (laughs) shooting a lot of rabbits. You know what I mean? Like when I was a kid, that's what you did. You just went out there and you just hunt rabbits. And now I I can't even aim a gun at one. Like it, it hurts my soul to even put crosshairs on one because I'm like, I am denying you the chance to give a great rabbit race. And so, I mean, they're just unbelievable. And I just, I, I, they're, they're much better than people think they are. Let's just say that. Yeah. I could, I could gush about them all day. They're just too cool. So. Oh
3: yeah, (laughs) for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I do a lot, probably the majority of the hunting I do is just free coursing with, with my dogs and I, you know, we'll, we'll go out. Well, once a week, we'll take them all out. Um, how many dogs do you have, Paul? well i've got uh i've got 11 dogs i've got 10 salukis and a jack russell terrier and we'll we'll usually bring like nine salukis out so i've got dogs that raid range in age from um what four months to 14 years you know and the the young and the old are definitely you know they walk by my wife and i and we'll take you know we'll walk for a couple hours and uh And the younger dogs are out there working the brush. So they're not on leads. They're just out there hunting. And I actually really enjoy that because to me it really shows how these dogs interact as hunting dogs. You know, Mm -hmm. you let them out of the truck and they run run helter-skelter for 10 minutes, you know, just burning off energy. Mm -hmm. Then we start, you know, a nice slow walk out through the fields. And I've got two dogs that will work out. 150 to 200 yards and then all the other wow. dogs are somewhere between them and me and uh and the way they hunt is they they all they, they they take a few steps and they stop and they watch the other dogs and then they take a few steps in different direction and they watch the other dogs and mm-hmm. Because they're, they're hunting as a group waiting for one of them to flush a hair. Yeah,
0: that's what I was trying to explain in my podcast is that sight hounds, they're not like a hound that's sniffing and, and baying and moving across the ground like a scent hound. They're right. like they're, – they're so vigilant and they just – they walk and watch. They're just waiting because their prey – they've learned that their prey isn't just going to be scented out. They know that their prey is going to bolt. And so right. they're just – they're on that hair trigger, pun intended. Yep. They're just waiting for that moment of that little guy to just burst out of the grass at 100 miles an hour. And they're going to take off. So, yeah, yep. they, they walk not tepidly, but they're just like their muscles are quivering and they're just walking so diligently as they move through that grass. And, yeah, yep. it's really cool to see. And with a big pack like yours, I bet it's even cooler to see that because I'm only running a few, a there's two some, or three.
2: There's some parallels there with like the Feist, the squirrel dog because they uh-huh. use they use all of their senses to do their job you know they use right. their eyes or ears and some nose you know some some lines and that's what i've heard being exposed to these uh, side side hounds coursing dogs that you guys are running it sounds like they use all their senses to do their job
3: mm-hmm. they do they really yeah. do
0: yeah. It's a such a difficult quarry to locate. Hares give off a lot less scent than a rabbit does. And so it really they are just so good at not being killed. <laughs> so yeah. they are they are tough to find and those dogs are really working to, to even find one. And the best way is to just stumble onto one. How do, really. how do
2: you know that, Seth? How do you know that hares give off less scent than a rabbit?
0: Well, I'm going to just I'm going to pretend that it's science and that I'm not out there sniffing the ground for him. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, there are actually, there are actually some data. There is some data and peer reviewed studies that show that that they actually do give off less less scent um, as a predator avoidance strategy. Obviously, so
2: so have you seen it personally? Like putting down a scent hound, running a scent oh. hound on hares versus running mm-hmm. a scent hound on
0: rabbits. Okay, so no, because I don't have a, no one hunts rabbits, both trailing hounds here. Okay. Um, because the sand, the sand doesn't hold scent at all here, really. Right. Um, but because when there's cottontails in the area, my quartering dog, my bird dog mix, she can zone in on a rabbit, a true rabbit, not a hare, instantly. Mm-hmm. Like as soon as they, she's downwind of a rabbit under a creosote, under a mosquito, or in a hole, she'll go to it directly. But with, okay. hares, with hares, she's got to be close, very close, and downwind. That's the only way she'll discover them. Otherwise, she'll walk right past them. I've seen her walk past them so yeah, like,
2: i was getting ready to call you out and say call bs on that but now <laughs> yeah, that you've that got sure. some actual data to back it up i guess i'll back off
3: uh, you know I, I i'll call bs on it <laughs> really let's hear it paul well i we for years we ran um i had a Brittany that that ran with our our coursing dogs for years and then she she got old and passed away and we got a um an english setter who my son now keeps, but um both of them would point jacks, um, and both would point cottontails as well. Uh, you know, more, more, I would say a lot more jacks were flushed by, you know, by, by actual just sort of flushing. Sure. Sure. Pointing. But I, but many times, either of those dogs would lock up on point to a jack, and my my sight hounds would honor the point, and they'd come up behind, and then cool. she'd go in and flush, and boom, yeah. and I'll go off after.
0: Yeah, I didn't want to say that Penny couldn't find them. She actually found a bunch. I mean, I've had buddy like Justin's been out with us, and she found six in an hour by scenting them, okay. not by stumbling okay. them. Okay. I'm just saying they're much harder to scent. Yeah, like the,
3: I, I, I I don't doubt that. I don't doubt. Yeah, it. he's yeah, gonna start just...
2: beating us up with science if you don't watch out,
0: Paul. <laughs>
3: yeah, I know. I know. Don't
0: I know. dis don't dis Penny. I'm coming at you, bud. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs>
3: These, these smart, smart guy millennials, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I just, when he starts coming at Penny's nose, I'm going to bring it like a freight train. <laughs> so, but anyway, yeah, I was just, uh, yeah, I, I love to see when people run scent dogs after the hairs too. It, you know, Paul, it's not that common. Uh, at least I've never seen a lot of it, but maybe you have.
3: Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd really love to get a, um, there's a lot of talk these days about working cocker spaniels and, uh, they're real close working, and they're flushing dogs, and mm-hmm. they've got great noses on them, and uh, I think one of those would, would be perfect for this kind of work.
0: What about your Jack Russell Terrier, man? I've seen that little old man. He's nasty. <laughs> I
3: yeah, no, he's, 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 too, he's too short-ranging, he, and he's, not, he's a great dog, but he's not the best hunting dog we've ever had. So.
0: He's a he's world-class at, growler.
3: <laughs> yeah, he's a world class growler. He's a good mouser. He catches a lot of mice around the yard.
0: Oh sure, uh, sure.
2: I'll send Roxy, Roxy out there, my boxer. Oh yeah. Uh you you know what? That I have fun with her. Um, and I'm going to take this right down a rabbit path, not a jackrabbit path. It's a legitimate <laughs> rabbit path. Um, but uh, yesterday she added to her resume weasel dog she actually caught a weasel in a brush pile while i was fishing up at our pond up at our pond yesterday so that was pretty awesome cool. took some pictures of that but it's amazing i think um you know when you're talking about i hear i hear paul talking about his dogs pointing jackrabbits or hares. um i think it's just they they get used to this is what i'm here for You know Mm -hmm. so the slightest bit of scent once they've done it a few times and they've got that reward or that affirmation for doing their job now when they get put on the ground and dogs aren't are smarter than we give them credit for you've got your you've got your salukis with you you've got your bird dog with you and you see a bird dog with you and now that bird dog knows oh i need to i need to be laser focused on this because then fun is going to happen do you think Mm -hmm. that's do you think that's accurate
3: I definitely do. Yes, Me too.
0: hundred percent.
3: Yeah.
0: hundred percent. And yeah, Roxy, that Roxy, the weasel dog, my, my pointer pit bull cross. She won't point, but she will go after a varied amount of game. And over Mm -hmm. the years, she's had a, a pretty wide repertoire of things to go after. So, uh, yeah, I get what you're feeling, Chris. It's fun no matter what they're going after. Yeah. So, (laughs) but, well, uh, yeah, man, I, Paul, I could, I could just go on for hours with you, buddy. When we went to your house, man, I had a hard time leaving. Honestly, and I felt like a kid in a candy store running around your place, looking at all your stuff, your birds and, and your dogs. And I was so surprised at how friendly your dogs are. Cause I've only seen Salukis that are like really shy and, and really like not, not feral, but you know what I mean? Just not, oh, I, do. I do. I walked in your house and all of them were like, can I get in your lap? And I was like, Oh, Hey, like, but they were so cool. And, and, yeah, I'm very excited to get into the Saluki world more. I mean, I've seen a lot of Saluki long dogs, and and my uh, friend and mentor Justin has some really good running Salukis that I'm really fond of. So I'm I'm very excited to add some some diversity to our Saluki game. So, Will you um, guys
2: indulge me on a few questions here. Go for it. Yeah. So, Paul, you you mentioned that you know your desert desert bred dogs and you might have to correct me here, but you, you classified them as not being more than three generations removed from their country of origin. Is that correct?
3: That's correct. Yeah.
2: So how many generations of your Salukis have you been breeding since you found those original desert bred dogs? How oh,
3: many generations? <clears throat> you know, I don't, I don't actually breed litters okay. here. Um, my, my dogs, I, the, the, they, we provide, um, from stud services to other to other desert bred dogs. Okay. So we have mostly I have Gen Gen ones and Gen twos here, and uh, and I also have a a, a Gen three, which is uh, the puppy that I have now and that um, that Seth just got for me. Okay. Um, <laughs> so those dogs are actually the Gen threes are. Salukis are a funny breed because they're the stud book isn't closed, the AKC stud book.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. So there's there's a way to bring um, country of origin blood into the stud book, but they have it has to be the third generation. So there's there's this whole separate stud book, this desert bred stud book.
2: Okay. So, so Seth, how many how many generations is your puppy removed? How many generations would Seth's puppy be removed from? You know, the original dogs running on on the Persian.
3: Um. Let's see. So,
0: I believe well, he's Gen three, right?
3: Yeah, three, three generations. Yeah,
0: he's Gen three, three generations he's, away. He's yep. AKC yep. registerable. I guess okay. is the right word. <laughs>
1: yeah. Exactly.
0: Okay. So, yep, yep. He's so a when, he's a american i guess
2: <laughs> gotcha so as you are uh, obviously you can't maybe you can it seems to me that it would be very hard to keep going back to you know Kurds and and finding these dogs and getting them here and and doing that legwork so is your goal to be able to breed true to type in the United States of what the Kurds are producing in the original dogs. Is that your
3: goal? Um, well, you know, but just by the fact that we're not over there, you know, we're not going to have the same dogs (laughs) Mm -hmm. because, you know, our choice in breeding would be different than, than what they would choose to breed probably. So, um, but yeah, that, that, that's the goal. Their their goal is is to, you know, I mean, if we're all lovers of dogs, I mean, if you follow, if you have you seen photographs of like what's happened to German Shepherd dogs?
2: Oh, that's where I was wanting to take this. Go for it.
3: Yeah. So I mean, the the this German Shepherds have been ruined by show by the show ring. You know, I mean, for for Schutzhund Schutzhound work now they they use Malinois. Right. and the belgian dogs the, the german shepherds are just a, a breed that's i hope someone resurrects them because they're such excellent dogs but i mean that sloping top line with the rear end i mean what where's the function in that there is no function uh, I mean, yeah it's, it's an abomination it's it's disgusting to me and you know you look in the you look in these the fancy you know quote unquote fancy magazines or publications of like salukis and they've You know, these show ring dogs are all like they're skinny and they're they're there's they're real thin boned and they've got these big, long fringes of hair on their tail and their legs. and, And it's like, how in the world is that dog supposed to catch a gazelle in the desert?
1: Mm hmm. Mm
3: hmm. You know? And, you know, that's one part of the Saluki world. But the other part of the Saluki world, and it mostly exists in the American West, in California, in New Mexico in particular, and some in Arizona, Nevada, there are people who are dedicated to hunting these dogs. And, you know, there's some very well-developed American lines, which are excellent. But, you know, kind of the goal of bringing these 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 dogs over from the middle east is god that, that that part of the world is look what's happened over there look what happened to syria syria had some of the best salukis in the world and now there's probably virtually nothing left just because the country's been destroyed mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: so a large part of what what the mission is is to bring these dogs into this country so to, to protect some of that and the other part of the mission is to to improve you know, and it's, it's hard to, you know, with the Saluki establishment to, you know, because we're, we're considered pretty fringy what we're doing, bringing these dogs in and having the separate registry. And then it's true. It's these true. generation three dogs, like the one Seth's got and the one I've got now, you get these into AKC and then you get them as an AKC registered dog. Then you have to get someone who's interested in this dog who sees the good of this dog and then breed it again to get the genes to propagate out into the AKC lines.
2: Right. So right.
3: so it's a it's a multi it's a multi um in my mind it's kind of a multi-pronged you know reasons for doing this.
2: And I like I like what I heard, you know, as far as preservation of the the historical aspects of what the salukis job is, that's awesome. So I can see the reason I brought this up is because you mentioned Cocker Spaniels. You know, how <laughs> yes. hard is it to find oh, a, a poster Cocker child Spaniel? Right <laughs> absolutely. Something that was once a, an actual working hunting dog that turned into this little blonde haired fat dog that <laughs> is obnoxious, <laughs> that can't find its oh, own man. feed dish.
1: You'll
2: yeah. Know.
3: And I, I hear you. I hear you. Well, you know what? And And there's, there's a, you, you, there's a group on, on Facebook, and I hate – you know hate Facebook's a pretty good reference, even though it's a real pain in the neck sort of thing.
1: Right.
3: It's, it's called Falconry Dogs USA or something like that because mm-hmm. falconers are also dog people, most of them anyway. And there's lots of discussion in there about working cocker spaniels. And there are several really good lines in this country and several really good kennels in this country breeding top-notch dogs.
2: Hmm. I had no idea. You know, I thought it was like Uh, finding a unicorn. Now,
3: really, exactly. Well, and it's all news to me too. I mean, and they're nice. They're nice sized dogs too. They're you know they range like twenty to twenty five pounds, which is really a good sized animal. Mm -hmm. You know, when when you're you know you don't. I like big dogs, but boy, let's face it. I mean, keeping a whole bunch of big dogs is a lot more costs a lot more, and it's a lot more work than having Mm -hmm. some smaller dogs. Yep. Yep.
0: And Wait. that's the thing i I, oh, sorry, Paul, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just also thinking that like for a finder, I like the finders being small because like you were just saying, I like the, I like the yeah. bill being cheaper for a dog that's not catching jackrabbits.
3: <laughs> exactly.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and
0: Paul, oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Chris.
2: No, finish your thought because I want to oh, gonna... get back and follow up on a couple of things I have, but finish your thoughts.
0: Oh, I was just saying, Chris, you should start a kennel of working boxers. <laughs>
2: Hey, we're restoring it. We're restoring it right here. She's hey, weasel.
0: Weasel hounds. Yeah. All right, go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Go ahead.
2: Uh, so, how selective are you in puppy placement, Paul?
3: Uh, pretty
2: selective. I um, mean, like snobby, snob, snobby, selective background. Re- send me references before you get one of my dogs. I mean, seriously, how selective are you?
3: Well, we want a commitment that the dogs aren't going to be used. You have to agree to a breeding contract, so okay. you're not going to just you're not just going to breed the dog to. Well, you're not going to breed the dog without serious discussions with uh, with the whole sort of. We call ourselves a cult. <laughs> That's
1: fine.
3: Yeah. in this little in this little group. I mean, there are other, there there's plenty of other people who have who have you know desert bred Salukis, but this little group that I'm, I'm a part of and that Seth has a dog from now, we it's, it's more, um, yeah, highly selective in where the dogs go. You have to agree not to breed it. You have to agree not to make, um, cross cross breeds, you know, mm-hmm. don't cross into a greyhound. Um, and we're really, really looking for working homes.
1: Mm-hmm. So
3: people, people who are going to take their dog out and hunt it, Um, and be, be willing to share their experiences, you know, because we're trying to get more people involved and interested in this, but, you know, like I was the, you know, the double edged sword of recruitment kind of thing again, comes up with that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if, if you're into doing, you know, competitive open field coursing that's that's also a good thing you know which is uh it gives a lot of um, positive uh it gets a lot of play in the breed world yeah that way Mm -hmm.
2: well i didn't mean to i didn't mean to put you on the defensive by using the word snobby and i there's a reason why i use that because um a lot of times People aren't selective enough, and I've I've been accused. I've made crosses before, and turned people down for pups. Or um, I want to know. I would rather place. I would rather give a pup away to somebody I know and trust than than sell fifty pups and just let them scatter to the wind and not know what happens to them. And I and I wonder. I wonder if there isn't something that. A message that could at least be somewhat considered by other hound hunting communities that that uh there is some value in that if if you're trying to keep quality and and uh performance at the top of your list, how valuable that could be and breeding contracts i want i want to ask you about that so um do they have to say Seth takes this this Saluki? Um, he develops him into this. What he feels like, he calls you up and he says, Paul, you aren't going to believe it. This, this Saluki's unbelievable and uh, she's coming into heat. She's at the right age. I'd really like to breed her. Does he need to bring that Saluki? Do you need to see that Saluki go or does your, you take a committee out or, or is it anything that structured?
3: <laughs> uh, it would, it would probably be, it would, it probably wouldn't happen on a, on a whim like that it would be more of a plan thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So it would be, you know, you, you know, you know, you know, the dog's developing well and it's showing real promise and it's, you know, you don't want to breed them when they're too young. I mean, you want to breed them, you know, the bitches maybe not until they're five or six and they've got some miles under their feet and, uh, you know, the dogs until they're, you know, four or five, maybe. And, uh, <clears throat> So it would it would be more of a longer term like planning on where the breeding how the breeding is going to happen and trying to keep uh, you know looking at the at the a lot of these dogs don't have pedigrees that go back very far the desert bred ones but right. you know looking at looking at the region the dog came from or you know trying to. Trying to maximize the, 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 you know, make sure, making sure you're breeding the best to the best. And, uh,
0: yeah, the goal is the best rabbit catchers with a good solid pedigree as well. That's, I mean, purpose Right. Bred. And,
3: and, and, you know, and, and as far as we can tell, a clean bill of health.
0: Definitely. You know,
3: most, most of these dogs will get um, Dopplers done on their heart at a couple years old because sighthounds have the tendency i mean their circulatory system is different than other dogs they've got bigger hearts they tend to get they tend to have heart problems Hmm. and that's 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 like the one genetic flaw that shows up in running dogs is their heart you know as some of them as they get older they get um uh what's the enlargement of the heart called i can't remember
0: cardiomyopathy
3: cardiomyopathy right and uh you know, once they, and that's usually starts to show itself around five or six years old. So you can, you know, if you get a Doppler done at that age, you've got a pretty good idea, you know, if you're going to have a dog that's got a, you know, solid heart or one that's going to crap out and the dog's going to die in the field. I had one of my early dogs, we were out running, it was a long dog. And, uh, man, the dogs ran out after a hair and, you Know, we they went over a hill and we didn't see what happened, and you know, half of them came back, and this one dog didn't come back. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went out there, and he was just laying there, you know, cold. Wow. And, that's sad. you know, it's basically is you know, it was a heart hearted giving out on him, mm-hmm. and uh. <clears throat> So yeah, you try to eliminate stuff like that. You're trying to minimize stuff right. like that. Right. Just yeah. like
2: hip dysplasia and the German short hair or I'm sorry, the German Shepherd and, and mm-hmm. but Alan Halata, the vet from California, actually talked about cardiomyopathy and starting to pop up in Labradors now. So uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. and it and it always comes from lack of discipline breeding. You know, right. and, and uh So I'm a big proponent. I I support what you're doing there, Paul. We got to be stingy. You know, these dogs weren't made for, to to lay by the fireplace or to be somebody's showpiece. They were bred with a purpose and a job. And it's our job as breeders and humans to protect that, to keep them functional in this world.
0: Right. Totally agree.
3: Yeah, I totally agree, Yes.
0: Yeah. And you know, a lot of people, if I could take it a step further, Paul, um, a lot of people would be like, oh, the Saluki cult people, they're like crazy because they're not breeding dogs until they're six and they're being too stingy with their dogs. And after getting to know you, Paul, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to get to know you. I really wanted to learn your, learn your style of thinking. It's so different than other aspects of hunting community. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I fully understand it and I totally agree. I, I think, um, being like Chris was saying, being more stingy about where dogs go, I think is a good thing, and I've learned I mean after I got your dog, people already coming out of the woodwork being like, "I can't wait to see a cross off that dog, and I'm like, well, it's not happening well,
2: <laughs> so. i'll take a I'll take a shot here because i've I've lived in this world so long, but when you get a and and i I love the the people that are running our kennel clubs. They're good friends of mine. I've I've worked with them on several I'm things. I'm losing you guys. Uh, I, are you losing us, Paul? Hello, hello.
0: Yeah, uh, um, am. you're breaking up, Chris, a little bit. Okay. Well, can you hear me, buddy? Yeah, I can. I can, I can hear can. you.
2: All right. Okay. So so where I was going with that was, you know, the kennel clubs have done things that, and I I'm not creating hate and dis discontent here but when you start talking about super stakes and, and things that you guys wouldn't know on the side side of it, um, reproducers lists and, and super stakes, you know, it's all called caused these breeders to produce a lot of puppies and get them out there. And, mm-hmm. and so that's why I wanted to, to talk to you about the highly discriminate breeding of these dogs and, so with this with this breeding practice that you're using, what is your your success rate, Paul? I mean, what what do you realistically? How many functional dogs do you plan to get out of a litter?
3: Oh, functional dogs out of a litter? Yep,
2: ones that'll run wow. a rabbit like you want them to. Oh,
3: I've never. You know, that's a tough one. Um, I've never really given that a whole lot of thought. Um, You know, jeez.
2: Uh, we never said this was going to be easy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I've never even really considered that aspect. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, the, the, to me, I I hope, you know, physically, they should all be pretty to a pretty high standard. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the difference that I've seen in what makes you go from a good dog to a great dog is what's in the dog's head. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that takes a, a while to develop and to really know what you've got. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like how many people that, you know, people, like they, they put a two month old puppy in front of them and they say, Oh, that's a great dog. But, you know, four years down the line, you know, you ask them how that dog turned out and then, Oh, you know, you know, he's good, you know, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary, but you know, how do you tell when you have an outstanding dog? I mean, I don't know from the, from the get go, how, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a tough one. I mean, I have a dog here that we got because, um, because we have his, uh, the sire of the dog that we got is. I have one of his brothers. a have so littermate to him, and mm-hmm. uh, we picked him up at like I don't know four or five months old, and I didn't really have much hope for him. I, I didn't. I didn't have high. I didn't have expectations at all, put it that way. And that dog went out in the field the first time at like five or months old, and just tore. But I mean, just just like screamed across the prairie, and he has, and he's just so laser focused on hunting, and so competitive with other dogs. He's run against faster dogs, and they'll lead out and be in front of him, and he, you can just see his brain kicking in and just say, "I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done with being behind these dogs." And he goes and finds some other gear and goes passing them, and you know starts working the hair and catch, catches the hair on his own. And,
1: mm-hmm.
3: you know, that kind, that's what I want in a dog. And how you get that, man, I, I don't know if that's just a, I don't know if you can breed for that. I really don't.
2: Well, I hope you can. I mean, that's the way we've bred horses, <laughs> and that's yeah. why we, we've bred performance dogs and and different things
3: like that. But um, well, Seth's got a puppy from that dog right now. So, you know, <laughs> yeah.
0: we'll find out. How I'm about as outgoing as it gets with them, so you'll find out.
3: Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah.
2: But we've got to face facts. I mean, how many secretariats are there? I know. I know. How many? Yeah, how exactly. many Michael Jordans are there? I mean, taking it to the human aspect, how many Albert Einsteins?
0: However. Um, you could counter that by saying that michael jordan's and like albert einstein's and they haven't humans haven't been selectively crossed for thousands of years to make these super athletes so i get we i guess if you're taking that direction maybe yeah um, that's that's
2: that's a good point that is a a very valid point you know i'm just trying to put some some them that maybe we can relate to probably not the best um but uh, definitely secretariats, and but they've been trying to reproduce that, and they've never, we've never been able to do it. Horse breeders have never been able to do it. that's so true.
0: true. But you, I'd uh, like to think any puppy that Pronto throws would be a superstar like him, but I I doubt it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's definitely breeding is one of those things that that um, we touch on from time to time, but we've really never drilled down into it. And, um, uh, I can see a, a need to continue this conversation in the future with, with other breeders to find out how to increase our success rates and things like that. So maybe there is some value, you know, I was kind of dissing PKC and UKC for historic breeders lists and, and super stakes, but I'll, I'll digress a little bit you know, maybe there's something to it that we need to look at and, and, um, I'll tell you somebody could really talk to it would be a uh, guy Ormiston. He's a blue tick breeder, uh, BBCHA editor for their blue book, but he is a, a student of, uh, oh. breeding and successes and things like that. And, and, uh, it'd be interesting for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh. Yeah. I, uh, that's a world that I need to get more fluent in because I'm just starting out. So I've never bred a litter of sight dogs. I mean, I'm, way into it, and I pay attention closely, but I'm about to get a lot more lessons, let's just say that, well, one <laughs> as of the, the thing, years go on.
2: One of the things I see, and, and we're we're getting off of hounds here, but you know, you you watch, I've seen litters of German short hair puppies that were selectively bred from performance dogs, and they've got so much instinct, even at six to eight weeks old, where you put a wing out in front of them and drag it along, and they all seen lock, videos of that. They all lock yeah. up, you know, all together, they lock up on it. Uh, even Labradors and and Chesapeake Bay retrieve or retriever breeds, uh, you know, you throw something and they naturally want to go get it, and then it's up to mm-hmm. us. So, you know, when I asked you, when I kind of cornered you there, Paul, about how many of your dogs are are performing at levels that you want, uh, there's a lot of variables that go into that. Uh, right? You know, you get a you get a superstar at five months old, and then he goes to somebody else, and then they don't hunt him as hard as he should be or handle him the way he should be uh, handled. And so he becomes an average dog. And um, Mm -hmm. I always go back to my buddy, Mike Cawley, the plot breeder from Louisiana. He'll have people come to his house and say, you know, he'll have a litter of plot puppies there and and they'll ask him, they'll say, well, which one, Mike, which one do you think is going to be the best dog? And his answer is always the same. He goes, he says, the one you hunt the most.
0: I love yep. that saying. I was going to say it. You beat me to it. <laughs> yep.
2: The one you hunt the most. And, um, uh, you know, I, I joke, I joke around about Roxy. I put my boxer, I put stuff, but the reason she does the stuff she does catching possums and, and weasels and snakes and whatever is because she's with me all the time and she's <laughs> out there exposed to it. So Yes, same certainly. way with my hounds same way with my hounds if i hunt them enough and i put them in the right situations they're going to perform
0: mm-hmm. diablo is looking good
2: um, yeah i need to but again you know we've got turkey season in full swing he's he's really starting to hit that but i'm very conscientious about hunting right now because there are so many people out turkey hunting uh, and no they're not hunting at night but they get all uptight if they hear a hound hound back there where they just roosted a turkey so uh, yeah kind of kind of being discreet and uh, mm-hmm. and trying try to, to be responsible right now and be considerate of our turkey hunters have got two weeks to hunt two and a half weeks to hunt in indiana you know i can mm. i can run hounds all but about four weeks a year here so i can i can lay back a little bit and work on some i agree stuff.
0: And i think that's a great line to take because here in new mexico you know the draw results just came out for our big game hunting and everyone's posting their sob stories on facebook about how they didn't draw nothing and i'm like good thing i got dogs because we can hunt anytime we want yeah. but we always lay off an antelope season so that our antelope hunters can go out there and enjoy the prairie without our dogs zipping around and i think that's a great way to keep relations really positive between us so definitely i, I like that
2: yep i think we i think we as houndsman xp we've got the ability to get that message out there you know and, and talk about that sort of thing because We've got to find ways to build bridges instead of put up walls between different sporting groups. Whether it's Send Hound, Side Hound, Hound Guys versus Antelope Hunters or whatever it is, we've got to find ways to, to build bridges and, and do that sort of thing. So
0: totally agree. Totally agree.
2: Let's uh have we got everything covered that you had in your outline, <laughs> Seth? Yes, sir. Paul, you got any final thoughts? Anything that's that's uh eating at you that you wanna get out there to to hunters in the united states don't be shooting no. hawks don't be shooting hawks Anything yeah like don't
3: be shooting hawks please don't be shooting ho- hawks they're you know they're they, they play a vital role in all our ecosystems and uh man they're, just, <laughs> they're yeah. so they're so they're such fierce predators i mean it, it, it you know you hold one in your hand you have one on your fist that flies out of a tree and lands on your glove or you you know I hunt with falcons and you put one up and it goes up to a thousand feet and comes down at 120 miles an hour and you know kills a mallard out of the sky. That's uh you know stuff you gotta you've gotta see (laughs) stuff you gotta see and man you you can't see it if you go out and shoot them. And uh you know especially turkey season is is a is a really dangerous time for hawks because hawks are nesting and some of them become defensive with their nests and you know, it's it's easy for to to mistake their acts of aggression as purely aggressive when they're just protecting their home territory. You know, so mm-hmm. if you're a turkey hunter, please don't shoot a hawk.
2: <laughs> I've got I've got a question for you. So sure, back east here, and uh, I'm sure you get the same thing out west. I'm sure I'm not special because I, you know, where I live. But uh, you know, chickens out in the yard, red tail hawk sitting on limb. Uh-huh. Uh, Preying on my chickens. As a master falconer, what do I tell my wife when I pull in the driveway and I see her stay in the re- driveway with a twenty two rifle wanting to shoot a hawk?
3: Man, what can she do to mitigate one. that? Well,
0: <laughs> I know. <laughs>
3: keep, your, keep your chickens in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, you tell her to go get a noose trap and catch it and tame it. <laughs> exactly. uh,
3: you know, if, if, if seriously, if you've got, I mean, there's a lot of falconers in Indiana. If you need, if you need connections, I can help you out. But if you have a nuisance bird like that, you can, you can just, uh, I can steer you or you can get on, you can, you can Google Indiana Falconers association, contact them or go on Facebook and, Say I've got a nuisance hawk. Is there a falconer that can come and trap it and move it for me? Nice. Well, and they'll do that. I've done that many times for folks, and um, you know, because and a lot of times, you know, smaller hawks will fly into into big box stores like Costco or Home Depot or something, and you know, we get called out pretty often to go and trap these birds out of those places.
1: Yeah,
2: I was a conservation officer for 28 years, so I had to mitigate a lot of those. conflicts between my wife and the hawks so oh yeah yeah no, i can <laughs> yeah.
3: imagine, imagine. yeah yep. yep.
2: taking her to jail wasn't an option so no
3: i <laughs> know hmm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's <was> tempting, <laughs> it tempting but long long game it wasn't an option
0: no nah, it yeah. wouldn't work out well <laughs> sweet I, I, I,
2: yeah sir seth what you got
0: well, uh, like I said, we'd covered a lot of my outline and I, we covered a lot of ground I wasn't expecting to, which was great. I love when that happens. Um, I just, uh, Paul, I wanted to, I mean, yeah, the birds were something that I thought our listeners and I also, because I, when I came to your house, I was just staring in your cages, kind of frothing at the mouth. And so you're going to, when we, when we run our pups to get, when I run my pup with your pack, I want to come out with you at duck season and I want to, I want to see you fly some birds after some hot, after some ducks. Is that cool?
3: Oh yeah, no. I, I usually mix them all up, you know. And hard. I
0: told these guys, I told Chris and Steve and Lauren, I told them they better get down here this fall and watch our dogs run. So maybe we can all get together in a big group at 380 and run. What do you think? Yeah,
3: yeah, that'd be that'd be a lot of fun. You know, um, you, you told a story in your when you, in your interview about a golden eagle coming in on your pack. Um, I I can tell a quick story about a buddy of mine, and I were out. This is probably ten years ago. And we were out on the the bench. Just you and I discussed this area, just east of the Manzano, just west of the Manzano Mountains.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. We were up on that bench, but further north, up by Tome. And uh, you know, we had we were just out BSing and walking. You know, and uh, we had I had a couple Salukis out, and he had a couple long dogs out. And you know, we're walking out there on the flats, and a jack gets up, and the dogs take off after it. You know, and we're watching the dogs work jack and. prairie falcon comes in which is a native falcon to the american west about the size of a peregrine so about crow size a little bit bigger and is you know following our dogs behind the hair you know we're like oh look check it out you know this is so cool and you know and the, the prairie falcon took up okay i'll get off real quick and uh we watched him do that for the next three courses that we got up that prairie falcon came in and killed the rabbit each time and didn't take possession of it
0: oh crazy
3: and we were yeah we were trying to get back to the truck without flushing rabbits because this prairie falcon was just you know doing it for the pure pure sport of it so anyway that's all i just wanted to convey that last little story
0: that's a you got a. is that your favorite course of all time paul i kind of love to ask this of every hound hunter and and some guys give me a really just kind of like Oh yeah, but what is what's your favorite course that you've had with your dogs? What what happened?
3: Yeah, that's right up there. I mean, that's probably the best. The best. Uh, that's pretty awesome. Because that's pretty was, awesome. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. I mean, you know, we thought, well, we let, we left the first hare out in the field because it's like, well, we'll just let the, the falcon take possession of it so it can eat. And it didn't. It wasn't hunting to 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 feed itself. It was hunting because it liked to hunt, which is an interesting, you know, interesting thing i think
0: you know that was cool he's just enjoying watching the dogs and that eagle when he i got the story on the patreon account for everyone with all the pictures and stuff and uh paul i want to i want to have this for the record and then we can i can stop badgering you but for the record you've never hunted from a rig before and so this fall i really want to get you in my rig what do you have any preconceived thoughts of the rig because you've never hunted from one i just kind of want to know from someone who's walked i've walked a lot matter of fact i walk Oh, I'd say about forty percent of the time. What do you think? Uh, Are you excited? Do you have any apprehensions?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm excited to do it. Um, it, it's not something that would work for me up here because of the country I hunt in. There's too many fences and it's too hilly. Ah, gotcha. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely interested in doing it. Um, I'm so think,
0: excited to have you on it. I think yeah, you're love no, it.
3: I'm I'm sure it's going to be fun. I'm sure I'll be hooked immediately. So.
0: Yeah, ask Chris Mason. She walked her whole life, got in the rig. She's like, there's no comparison. Because oh, you get I know. to watch your dogs hunt in a way that you've dreamt of. Yeah.
3: Oh, I know. She's told me many times already. <laughs> <laughs> I, I and ask, so have I. I would ask so, for a copy of the
2: liability insurance policy first.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we were on two wheels last time. I tell you, we had that rabbit, and uh, we were going, and the rabbit juked hard with the dogs. Like, we're 50, 60 yards away, and it's just instinct. When the rabbit turns, I turn the rig, and we were going probably 45 and so when we got turned, and I learned a valuable lesson there, slow, slow down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were uh, having a good time. So I'm going to show Chris and and Lauren and Steve a good time this fall when we're we're going 50 across the prairie behind those speed dogs. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, that
3: sounds good, man. Yeah. yeah. Let Let me know. Let me know. You know, if you guys come down, because I can line up my buddy here who uh, who runs sighthounds and flies a falcon for jackrabbits. So it's uh, nice. That's Sounds a definite must-see cool. must, must see as well. Definitely.
0: That'll be a first for me too, so I'm in. I'm in.
3: Well, Paul, I just want to
2: thank you for uh, taking time out of your day and and uh, sharing your experience and your knowledge with the side hounds. It was extremely interesting for me. I think we got a look at the falconry side. Um, that brings a whole different aspect to our hound houndsman lifestyle here. Something that it's always cool to talk to people from other parts of the country, uh, that, that may do things a little bit different and, um, pretty cool stuff. Pretty cool stuff. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you coming on.
3: Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank
0: you. Yeah. Thanks Paul. And I've really enjoyed our friendship and I look forward to many more years and, uh, I can't wait to get up there and see some stuff. And I guess wrapping it up here at Hounds and XP, how we always do. You follow your hounds and I'll follow mine. Thanks again, everybody.
3: (laughs) Thank you.